Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. As people who love badminton, we all know that it's not just about the sport itself. It's about the connections you make and the things that it teaches you as a person that you're able to bring to all of the other parts of your life. That's why we want to introduce you to the book Mirror of Magico, written by Al Liao, a former Taiwanese national badminton player who is as passionate about badminton as us. For those who love Harry Potter, you want to give this one a read because Al has authored a fantasy story where three different characters with varying personalities go on a journey of adventure and learning. And they realize that things don't just happen to you, they happen because of you. And by being yourself and spending time in your dreams, you can conquer the evils and be the best version of yourself. So make sure you check it out. Mirror of Magico, written by Ao Liao. You can find it in all leading bookstores and we'll leave the link in the podcast description. So from all the way over from the UK, we're really happy to introduce you to Alex Dunn for this episode of the podcast. He's currently ranked number 37 in the world for men's doubles with Adam Hall and he's training with the Scottish national team. He has a few international titles under his belt as well with wins at the Scottish Open, Austrian Open and Welsh Open. Outside of badminton, he's studying sports science and he's graduating this year. Jump smashing, I think the leg drive and the hip extension to be able to rotate your body backwards your range of motion through your chest and shoulder to be able to almost pull it back. I mean, the bigger the lever, usually the harder the force comes through and the relaxation and squeeze in the grip. So at the point of contact, everything stays relaxed, come through and then squeeze, squeeze at the very end to get the good contact. I think those three things are definitely key. I think the hardest or the best thing I could say is Unfortunately, you are going to lose more than you win at these times in your career, but not bog, get bogged down and focus on the results. Do you know what I mean? You're early in your, your senior career and your senior career could last 10, 15 years. You need to focus on putting the work in. Do you know what I mean? Trust the process almost because it does take a while. So you need to get that grind day in, day out. And as cliche as to say, it is what needs to happen. And the progress will come step by step. Alex, welcome onto the podcast. Very nice to be here. Looking forward to the podcast. 
Awesome. So just before we get started, you sent a photo through to me because we always ask for photos of guests and you, and you sent one of you, I think in the opening ceremony or closing ceremony gear at the Commonwealth Games for 2018, and you were wearing one of the Scottish kilts. I've never actually worn something like that before. How does it actually feel? Um, it's actually not too bad. If I'm honest, obviously during us, when we were in the Commonwealth Games in Australia, kilts are pretty heavy and quite, can be quite warm. So it wasn't ideal in the climate of Australia, but usually it's not too bad, actually. It feels quite nice. Like, I think all Scots would say they're pretty proud when they put one on. So do you get like good gusts of wind under there as well? It's like... <laughs> you certainly do, especially if it is windy. But yeah, it's too fair. I think most Scots now generally wear it at weddings and stuff, obviously, kind of traditional events. I suppose that's the most common of it now. So yeah, it's, it's really nice to wear. I, I love it. Okay, great. What's the compulsory undergarment when you're wearing a kilt like what what goes on underneath like is there like i don't know some kind of inside joke or is it is there specific types of undergarment you need to be wearing with the kilt surely you free ball that sometimes <laughs> the inside joke is a true scotsman goes commando wears nothing so that tests what level of scotsman you are definitely okay so was the scottish team generally at the commonwealth games were they scottish or were they just posers then I'm not ashamed to say I think the badminton lot were just posers. Okay. <laughs> I think maybe the, the rugby boys are definitely probably a bit harder. I think they'll go full commando. <laughs> All right. I'm glad it wasn't too windy then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get started, Alex. Now, in terms of your badminton story, we always like to dig in and see where all of our guests come from and how they get in, introduced and involved in the sport. So how did your badminton story begin? I guess so. I have a sibling, an older sibling called Robert, and I think quite a lot of families around the world that's going to happen. So, my brother started playing badminton in school. We had, luckily, in our first school, we had quite a good teacher. I think the badminton club began to grow, and uh, he started going to be, he started getting more into badminton, going to more tournaments, and all. So, as the younger brother, I started following. So, I, I went to the school club around age nine and kind of continued from there. So at age nine, when you're starting badminton and you know your brother Robert is is playing as well, did you have a bit of a competitive streak with him? Were you comparing and, and trying to outplay him at any chance you get? Probably not at that age. At that age, he was far better than me. But then as we kind of grew up and obviously he still plays a lot, obviously not to the level that I'm at at the minute. But yeah, definitely throughout junior. As I kind of got a bit older and stronger, closer to him, there was a lot of competition, even though it's, it's still quite good to play with them. Yeah, great. So from, say, your nine-year-old self and you're, you're just starting to play, was that kind of just a school thing, like you said? Were you playing out of school? And then when did you start to take it a bit more seriously? Yeah, I mean, I guess like many kids, I was, I was into my sport. Like I played quite a lot of sports. Rugby was actually my main sport at the time. I was quite, I enjoyed athletics. I enjoyed football, but yeah. Balancing started just from school and then I think because my brother actually took it further than quite a lot of his other sports again I just followed the, the same so yeah started off at the school club and then in our county there's like trials for the schools and also into a county club from there it grew I started getting individual lessons and it, yeah it just kind of grew from there yeah, so I guess you started off as your brother's shadow and then overtook him at some point during your teenage years so would I be correct in saying that you got pretty into it very quickly or were you still dabbling with the other sports throughout your, I guess, junior years? No, I would definitely say Bamson progressed faster than other sports as well. I think it, 
began to all the other sports kind of fell fell off apart from rugby. And I think it was the, around the age of fifteen, I guess this is where I kind of thought, okay, maybe this is a bit more serious. I'm really into this. Uh, I kind of had to choose between one or the other, and I chose I chose badminton. Okay, and so rugby, badminton, two very different sports. And you're in Scotland. You have your rugby mates, I'm sure. What did they think of badminton? I actually think they, because a lot of my rugby mates were also from my local area, from my county, and I quite a lot I went to school with. So and I'm not sure. I'm not sure how. I don't know if it was just lucky at that time that during my county county days and my hometown badminton kind of started to grow because of like the school club. The school I think won like the Scottish the Scottish championship for the schools. And it actually became kind of a community thing and a lot more people started playing. So they weren't, I guess, as dismissive as you might think because it was kind of a growing thing at the time. So yeah, it was it was not too bad. Yep. So was that a hard choice for you to make? So let's just say how much fun you had in badminton versus rugby or what your results were in badminton versus rugby and your capability or the possibility that you could do great things in either one of the sports was badminton ahead in most of them or was it was it quite hard to make that choice no i i think as i said badminton grew quite quickly from my end and the enjoyment i had was amazing and i, I love rugby admittedly being in scotland the winter times are not as fun as the summer times like i enjoyed rugby so much more in the summer as i think most people would so yeah the only thing that kind of threw me at the end was when i decided or was coming to the decision to playing rugby I did get asked to go for like a Scotland trial with the juniors I think it was like under 16s it kind of threw a wee bit of a curveball but not too much like I knew I knew in my head I loved I loved badminton and wanted to, to take that further yeah that's really good so now moving on so you're, you're 15 16 years old you've decided okay badminton is my sport I'm going to focus all my attention on that how much did your training load increase and then what was it like when you took that next step like was it playing more tournaments? Was it going internationally more? Was it, what did that look like? Yeah, I think so. I think in my first introduction to like the junior national team was, was pretty young. I think I was 12 or 11. Of course, it wasn't that many training hours. It was maybe once a week, we always come together in the West of Scotland and Glasgow where I'm currently at. There would be a, a national team day every Sunday. And then at 15, 16, there was a few more introduction days during the week. I think there was like a, a smaller squad of six of us that trained maybe one Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And of course, I tried to keep up individuals to Tuesday and a, and a Thursday. So I tried pretty much to train every day. But obviously at that time, you've got school as well. So most of the time, they're at night. Yeah. So taking a step back a little bit, Alex, when we started the podcast, Jeff was talking about, you know, your world ranking is in men's doubles. In terms yeah. of the singles event, mixed event, doubles event, when you were growing up, and of course, when you're nine, you're probably playing everything. But at what point did you decide, okay, I want to do men's doubles or I'm more suited towards men's doubles? Yeah, it probably came at around under 17 I was at the time. And it, it kind of only came about is because my partner now, Adam Hall, he's obviously two years older than me. So his under 19 European champs is coming up. And I was the next best player, even though I was two years younger. So they decided to pair us as a men's doubles. And having not really played together, obviously, at juniors. And luckily, we managed to get a bronze medal at that event. And that kind of showcased a bit of, okay, there's potential here in this partnership. But after that, he obviously went on to progress to the seniors. He had a few different partners, and I was still at juniors. And it wasn't until the end of my junior career that this was the decision was made that me and Adam would put together because 
at that time, I wanted to be a singles player. And I think a lot of players growing up, that's what they want. Do you mean, they see like the likes of Lindan and Lee Chong and they think that's what I want to be. And it was, I'm not going to lie and say I took the decision easy because it is a big decision in your career. But I'm, I'm happy with how the decision went. And I'm glad that I'm now in the doubles and I, I can thankfully say now that I'm happy I am there and I don't think I would enjoy singles as much as I thought. Yeah, and also going back to when we first introduced you, one of your international titles is actually a mixed doubles title. So what are the, at the moment, are you playing mostly men's doubles? Are you playing much mixed doubles? And which one do you tend to like more? It's been a bit of a chop and change. So in my under-19 Europeans, I played, that's when also I decided to play men's doubles and mixed doubles. And I got a medal, a silver medal of mixed doubles. And that kind of, again, showcased a little bit, okay, I'm not too bad on a mixed doubles court. So I played with Eleanor O'Donnell for a year and a half and that kind of stopped. And then my men's doubles was my priority. And I think it's it probably is still my priority, but um, the women's doubles categories could change right in the partnerships. With, so as I'm playing with Julie, and Julie plays women's doubles with Kira Torrance, who's now my partner for mixed doubles. And that's who I decided, not decided I get told I was playing mixed with, but I definitely say I, I enjoy men's doubles more. Okay. Well, you just said that you enjoy men's doubles more, but when you were name-calling, you name-called Lin Dan and Lee Chong Wei. So let's go to men's doubles. I mean, did you have role models in the men's doubles space as well when you were growing up? I'm going to say no, because I primarily didn't watch it very much. I don't think I appreciated how amazing it is. And it only it wasn't only till the end of my junior career that I started to pay a bit more attention. But yeah, now I, like, I think one of my coaches growing up loved Tony Gunawan. And of course, it was, it was a bit before my time. I didn't really get the chance to see him play. But when I look back at all that, he's incredible. And he's incredible. Episode number 50 of the podcast for anyone. I remember that because it was the half century podcast for us. We had Tony on. So tune into that if you want to hear from Tony Gunawan, absolute legend in the sport. So from that point on, you're one of the top juniors or you're, you're a junior and you're playing with someone two years older than you. And then now you are... 37, I think I said 37 in the world in men's doubles. How has that kind of progression from that junior level into the senior level, how has that been for you? Because that's often where a lot of people are actually lost from the system, that that jump from juniors to seniors is a hard one. How did you find that? Yeah, again, it's it's been tricky. It was, I think the main thing that caught me off guard was mine and Adam's first international tournament was the Polish Polish Open Senior, which was a challenge event. So it was the first tournament, not expecting too much. We managed to get to the final, which I think surprised a lot of people, surprised our coaches, surprised ourselves. Um, and in my head, I was like, all oh, right, this, this isn't as hard as maybe I thought. Kind of getting a little bit confident. And then the reality check happened. I think the next tournament, the next week, we managed to lose first round. And it was, it was trying to find your feet a lot quicker. or It was harder than I initially thought. And it was a struggle to kind of see that progression because seniors is so different to juniors. You know, you need to put in that work. There's so many good players, even in the first and second round, like it, it's hard. So it's definitely been a learning curve and it's it's so hard for juniors to, you won't know what happens until you're there. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, with Adam, you did quite well at the Polish Open senior event. Um, and then the next one, not so well. In terms of what happened in between, you felt a little bit, overachieving and maybe maybe a little bit arrogant going into the next one or was there just a difference in your ability to play together was there just a sudden lack of chemistry after that kind of tournament or was there anything in particular that actually was the differentiating factor between the two tournaments that you had from what i remember i think because it was a first tournament in the polish like 
I guess most people, there was zero pressure. Do you know what I mean? It was almost exciting because it was a first tour. So we just went in there, enjoyed ourselves, no pressure, could play freely. And I think that's such a dangerous thing to have at any situation. And then going into the next week, I suddenly felt like a little bit of pressure to perform again. And being quite young and not being able to handle that pressure almost just crumbled under it and was quite, it was quite hard to take thinking we went from one to the other so quickly. So yeah, I mean, it was such a big learning curve. Yeah, I think that's something to say a lot of juniors who might not have made the finals for their first international challenge event like you did, but that feeling of when they're in juniors, they're often used to winning, right? They're used to winning or taking titles or going very far. And then they go into seniors and they lose first round many times over and maybe get a second round, maybe a third round, but not maybe not that often. Looking back on what you went through and, and how you grew as a player, do you have any words of advice or or anything you can say to maybe a 19-year-old or 18-year-old who's used to winning these games, but then all of a sudden comes into the seniors and loses everything first round? I think the hardest or the best thing I could say is, unfortunately, you are going to lose more than you win at these times in your career, but not bog, get bogged down and focus on the results. Do you know what I mean? You're early in your, your senior career and your senior career could last 10 to 15 years. You need to focus on putting the work in, do you know what I mean? Trust the process almost because it does take a while. So you need to get that grind day in, day out. And as cliche as to say, it is what needs to happen. And the progress will come step by step. Yeah, it's really that work ethic and perseverance piece. And we talked about Tony briefly. You know, Tony was always talking on our podcast about winning or learning. And I guess taking that L or that loss as, as an opportunity to learn is important as well when you are young and you're so used to those big achievements going into a more senior focus. So Alex, we talked about, I guess, your initial badminton journey from a nine-year-old following Big Brother around, playing badminton, playing rugby, then going hard on the badminton side of things. We didn't really touch on, I guess, who along your journey actually helped you on your way. So is there anyone in particular that throughout your journey has really helped guide it and, and I guess, shape the badminton player that you are today? Yeah, I mean, I always say this when someone asks me. I think it was one of my first coaches. And I think, also when I went from the school club to county and then to starting at individual lessons, there was one of my first coaches called John Murphy. And I think he really gave me the spark of enjoying badminton, which I think at such a young age set the foundations for me to enjoy that completely. But I mean, there's been quite a lot of people, of course, my family, I mean, at that young age, you can't do it without their support. Obviously, financially, it does cost a lot of money to travel around, pay for training and stuff. So I think they were, the, of course, my biggest influences and health. Yeah, it's funny how sometimes when we do ask people that question, it's not always the, say, the, the coach of the national team or the one that's behind the court getting, helping you get those highest achievements. Obviously, they play a big part and they're really special, but it is often that one that nurtured you or helped you when you were really young and, and got you into the sport. Do you remember anything that maybe he told you that you can still recall today or something that he did? The reason I'm asking is because I guess sometimes as coaches or someone who's listening who might be coaching, they might think, hey, I, I only coach 10-year-old or 12-year-olds. What I do is not that important. I mean, it's just a 12-year-old kid. What, what are they going to get out of it? Like they'll probably forget it tomorrow. But then when we ask this question, it's so evident that these early coaches that really do have a huge impact on someone's career like yourself. So do you remember anything that he said to you or anything that he did that really made you feel that passion or made you really feel like he cared? 
Yeah, I suppose the caring part actually comes into quite a bit. And I think what he did was just made sure I enjoyed it. Like he wasn't the most, I don't think he taught me very much technical stuff, but he got me fit and he made me enjoy the sport. And I think one of the sessions that always speaks out to me, I guess, is like we used to do a lot of kind of multi-shuttle stuff and he would say, he would give me like an incentive. He'd be like, look, if you get all these shuttles back, I'll give you the lesson for free. Something like that. And I remember like he would genuinely, he would come and give me the money back that my parents actually paid for the lesson. And I always, that always sticks in my head and it's probably not too much, but I just, I always remember it. And it just, I remember being excited to go to badminton because he made it so fun. That's certainly one way to get someone excited <laughs> about badminton. That's for sure, Alex. I wish my coach did that. Ready for the new world. Hopefully he wasn't going hungry that night <laughs> because you're getting all the shuttles back. <laughs> now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The badminton podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright, and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. Okay, so Alex, we did mention that you are in your final year of graduating of, of university in sports science. It'd be interesting just to hear from you how maybe you've found that course helpful for your badminton career and the way that you train and whether there's anything directly that you learned in your course that has helped you in your training or, or preparation for your tournaments and your matches. So I decided to go to university because... Unfortunately, your badminton career doesn't last forever. Do you know, injuries happen, things happen, and careers can be cut short. So I was like, I was trying to be sensible. I was like, right, I need a backup plan here, just in case. So, and also being interested in sport, it was kind of a no-brainer. And the university I was at, they were very flexible in allowing me to obviously train full time and be studying. So that helped a lot. And I think it was quite interesting because you know, you especially now you do this for a living. And sometimes you don't actually know the background of what's going on. I think that this course that I did kind of allowed me to see a bigger picture of what was behind like a national team setup. Especially in my, my final year this year, we did obviously like a strength and conditioning module. And obviously being part of the national team, we get, we get support from the Scottish Institute and strength and conditioning is also a big part. And just going into the background of why we do certain exercises, why we do like a periodization of strength blocks, different blocks, power blocks. It does kind of help you understand the background of why you do what you do every day. Yeah, and I guess it gives you a deeper appreciation of the physiology or the, the smaller parts of the bigger puzzle piece and a better understanding of, of your own body and how it is performing and how it's changing when you are playing such a dynamic sport like badminton as well, Alex. Now, in terms of your sports science, let, assuming that everything goes great, win many medals in Olympics, etc. The badminton career is over and you want to take that sports science degree to your next journey to whichever that is. What does that look like for you? I'm not too sure at the minute. I've been having actually kind of mixed reviews, obviously, 
sport's something I always be interested in. And I think this is also why when you asked about what other things I would like to talk about in the other side of my life, and I'm not sure I would like to 100% necessarily go down another sports route after my career. I think I would quite like to maybe explore something different and something recently I've been thinking about is maybe carpentry or joinery, which is probably not what most people think, but you do only get one life and I'd like to try and explore different avenues if I can, but you know, we'll see what happens at the time, I think. Yeah. And speaking of these other avenues, we did have some contact before this episode of the podcast and you were talking about how you do feel it is important to have other things in your life other than badminton, even though it is a huge part of your life already. But yeah, why do you think it's so important to have these other things? And other than joinery and carpentry, are there any other things that you do like to do outside of badminton? Yeah, I think this is obviously part of the reason I went to university as well. Badminton can be quite an intense place to be, training competition, and it can take quite a big toll on your emotions. And my coach currently, Robert Blair, he also used to play and he's got so much experience and like I appreciate him being my coach and he gives a lot of good advice. And I think as well, when I was going down your your Instagram and listening to the clip of Marcus Ellis, he also said there's so many different avenues and the world continues to turn. And I think that's so important that it's good to have a separation because because Bamit is so intense, you need things to refresh your mind. And it's I found out that that's so helpful and you do need that. So yeah, I do enjoy I enjoy playing different sports. Do you know what I mean? I still try to continue to do that. Carpentry joining me. I do a, a, a decent bit of art and calligraphy, actually. And, you know, <laughs> I just try to be use my weekends the way they should be used. Do you know I mean, enjoy just completely separate myself from badminton to, to almost refresh your mind and go back into training the next week and be looking forward to it rather than just continue to be bogged down by, by how much is going on within the sport. Okay, there's a lot to talk about here, Alex. <laughs> well, we're not going to move on for a bit because we need to know more about these creative outlets of yours. And I guess one of the things that I noticed when I was on your Instagram having a sneaky look is that you did draw a superhero in one of your Instagram posts. Can you tell us a bit about that really ripped dude you were drawing? Were you drawing a like an alter ego of yourself or what, <laughs> what's the deal there? I knew that question was coming. <laughs> no, no. And I actually think, again, I think that stems from... My brother, like my brother was really, really good at art when he was younger. I remember I was thinking, I was like, oh, that looks, that looks so cool. Like, I wish, I wish I could do that. So then I just, I, I mean, I never did art in school, but I was always quite interested. And then at the times where I realized, okay, maybe I should be looking for different avenues to just enjoy myself. Art was one of the things. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, not quite the artist, but you know, I don't mind trying. And obviously it's like, but I mean, that you'll get better. The more you practice, the better you'll get. So yeah, I do enjoy it. And I mean, I wish I was that alter ego on my, my Instagram page. It would, it would suit me well, I, I would hope. Yeah, awesome. I guess with the calligraphy as well, that I think that I would be, there wouldn't be many things that I'd be worse at than calligraphy because my handwriting is pretty rubbish. <laughs> but how does that go? Is that something you're just learning online by yourself? How do you learn calligraphy well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the power of social media these days. Do you know what I mean, on your Instagram, as soon as you kind of start looking at one thing, it kind of suggests you all these other things. So, I mean, I just, I literally just learned through Instagram. I follow quite a few calligraphers now and I literally just practiced at home, looked at theirs and tried to copy. It's actually not as hard as everyone thinks it is. And I just pretend that I'm quite good when I'm, I'm probably just average. That's why we haven't seen any Instagram posts yet. I think you're still in practice mode, but that's okay, Alex. 
I wonder what the opportunity is to sort of mix calligraphy and joinery or carpentry together in some sort of weird kind of mesh. But maybe that's a that's a topic for another day. But in terms of like your carpentry and perhaps that trajectory, if you're going to go down that sort of pathway, have you done much in the way of carpentry work already? Um, not too much. I did. So I don't know if you see on Instagram, but do you know the resin tables? It's like a wood tables that have got like a it's like a kind of resin through the middle. It looks like a river. So I I did actually make one of them during COVID, the first the kind of first lockdown we had in the UK. Because again, I had so much time. I was bored watching TV and just sitting around. I was like, right, I'll use this time productively. So that kind of sparks my interest a bit more. Yeah, I just Googled it and yeah, they look pretty cool. I'm hoping that yours looks just as cool, if not cooler, and it's, you know, somewhere in the house. Yeah, no, I was genuinely surprised at how well mine went. Actually, from from our first time, and also I was just going off YouTube videos and stuff and how to use the right equipment and things. But yeah, no, I was pretty pleased. And I would I think when I try to buy my own apartment one day and I've got enough spare money that I can properly try and make out like a large dining table, I would I would love to do it. Fantastic. I think that the, all the podcast listeners are getting a real appreciation of how much of a, more than a, just a badminton player you are with everything that you're doing. And who knows, you might be making your own instructional videos on, on how to make resin tables or all those kinds of things in the future. So that's really interesting. We are going to get back to the badminton part a little bit now though. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> so I guess after Henry was talking about after your badminton career, and of course, in a country like like Scotland, which in which badminton isn't probably isn't one of the the biggest sports there, it is always useful for former players to help in the system or coach or, or to do that kind of thing. But I was just really curious just to see how badminton is going in Scotland. Is it a sport that is progressing? I know that you said when you were young, like your your little county, because you won the this national school competition that was growing a bit then, but. How's it going as a, as a country in terms of participation and popularity? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, it's not the, the biggest sport in Scotland by far. And the band in Scotland are working hard to get more participation and actually more club members to, I mean, there's always a system in each country. So the club system in Scotland is not amazing. If you look at somewhere like Denmark, constantly feeding through great new talent. And I think that's what's lacking in Scotland. So yeah, Bam and Scotland are trying to put in these measures and they include the national team because they're interested in how we got to where we are. So they want to try and implicate that. And with the actual national team, there's we're currently quite a young national team. There's a bit of a gap in the generations, which is why Bam and Scotland now think, okay, there must be something we can do better so there is no gaps. So yeah, we're definitely, definitely growing. Yeah, and I guess the system or county that you're a part of was very progressive when it came to badminton as a sport. Do you feel that what's needed in Scotland is to kind of replicate that particular system across a wider pool of people or, or, you know, juniors? Yeah, I think looking back now, I think I was genuinely quite lucky and fortunate that I had all the right implications at that time that made me go to where I was. And I think that's what something Bam and Scotland are looking at that, okay, how did we get it right? Maybe that one time out of 10. And that's what they're trying to do across Scotland, implicate that system that then it continues to produce players like myself and hopefully grow the national team. Yeah. And I guess they'll be looking at how, like, of course, in my time was more like Kirsty Gilmore and Kieran as well, who was Miralees, who came through that were very strong players. So hopefully Scotland or Scottish badminton will continue to progress. 
Now, talking about you and where you're headed, what are the plans for the future? Of course, let's just say COVID isn't around and there are tournaments to play and countries to travel to, et cetera. What's the end goal for you? Where do you see yourself? Where would you like to be in, say, three to five years or at the end of your career? What do you want to have achieved? Yeah, I mean, I think the next couple of years are definitely important for myself. Pre-COVID, me and Adam had won quite a few consecutive challenges events. So we were looking to kind of make that next step in terms of getting more competitive in the 100 to 300 events and then start playing the top 1,000s. So yeah, I think the next three to five years is, is a bit of progress towards that. Like like I said, it's not easy where you start from juniors coming in and then trying to make this next transition into, say, the top 20. I think that's definitely a big goal. And within the next year, with the next Commonwealth coming up, we want to try and medal. Yep, and uh, that's certainly not too far away. We wish you the best of luck with that, Alex. And talking about your, I guess, your efforts with, with Adam in men's doubles. Men's doubles is, in terms of badminton, it, it's such a like complete game. It's got so many different aspects to it. In terms of what your favorite parts of the game are, like, what do you think is the most important? I think for us to take that next step, it's being able to play at the top speed, I guess, of the game. Do you know what I mean? When you get into that next top 20, they hit harder, they defend better, they're faster movers, they're sharper around the net. And I think over the next year, year or two, we need to try and play as many big opponents and top 10 players as we can to almost build that experience up. From being being Scottish, do you know what I mean? We don't have massive depth. We don't have those top 10 players that maybe some of the other countries do or at least have one or two pairs. So for us to try and get that experience, we need to go to the big terms. We need to play the big players and take as much as we can from that. Yeah, that's so true. I guess they they do everything just at an increased speed so they can still get their shot quality and everything as good, but they're just up in that next gear, which I guess is hard to sustain for. You could compete up to maybe half a set or this this is a common thing that happens here pretty close until 11 all or something like that but then they just take off because they can maintain that but just looking back at obviously you're you're a very strong doubles player top basically 35 in the world and with the international challenges that you're winning what do you feel has been one of the biggest strengths in your game to help you get this far so maybe as a combination is it you're attacking really good you're defending is it your first three is it is it anything in particular that you feel that like you consistently kind of dominate at at this kind of level yeah i mean it's also it's nice having an older partner i mean he's got some experience and i've also learned from adam a few things in our partnership i think it's pretty well known that adam's definitely a dominant front player and i'm more of an attacking back player so i think our attack is strong i'm luckily to have a decent smash on me and Adam's also quite tall and he's got great net skills. So I think that's a strong part. And definitely within the first three shots, I mean, we've got speed in our hands and we're quite sharp. So I think there are strengths at this moment. It's interesting that you say that you are the dominant back player in your partnership, given all your creative outlets when you're off the court. Because from my perspective, when I when I see someone that's so creative outside of the badminton world, they're often like the Watanabe of the pair, just running around doing some crazy stuff. But yeah, it's interesting to hear that you're you're actually the backcourt player, almost known as the backcourt player. But in terms of, I guess, what you've learned outside of badminton, where whether that be calligraphy, building a resin table, etc., is there anything that you've been able to take out of all of that and apply back into the game of badminton, or perhaps vice versa? Unfortunately, I wouldn't say so much in terms of being 
so much creative on court but again I think it's something I'm working on and I think it's quite hard I mean it'll take a while and it's again what Marcus Ellis said about the world keeps spinning and I think taking that pressure off yourself on the court plays a huge part and it's, again it's something I'm trying to learn but it will come with the experience as well of being in the bigger stages and being able to relax and it being relaxed on court gives you that freedom to be a bit more creative and be relaxed and try your shots. I mean, you got to go for it. And yeah, I think that's definitely something that's had an impact off the court and on the court. Yep. And then I guess taking what you've learned in badminton with your really your work ethic, of course, the the sports science that you know. Have you found that in other aspects of your life, whether it's, I don't know, family, social, of course, the hobbies that you have, your work ethic or whatever you've learned in badminton has helped to develop other aspects of your life as well? Yeah, I definitely think, I suppose more so when I was a bit younger and through sport and and uh, school, sorry, like you got to work hard for what you want. And I, I did apply that to my school as well because I knew I wanted to go to university and, and train at the same time. So I knew I had to put as much effort into my sport as my studies. I definitely think it was more apparent in my younger days, whereas now, obviously, my main focus, having graduated, is the badminton. So I'm quite looking forward to maybe giving that a little bit of an extra push in terms of focus when I'm actually on the court. Speaking of developing things, I guess this is a bit sidetracked and, and it is very focused on your canon of a smash and, and developing a powerful smash. There are so many things that you can do to develop that canon, right? So if you could choose three things, I guess the most important things, in developing your cannon, what would that be? I think, obviously, jump smashing. Obviously, I don't know if... I know some females obviously jump smash, but I think the leg drive and the hip extension to be able to rotate your body backwards, your range of motion through your chest and shoulder to be able to almost pull it back. Do you know I mean, the bigger the lever, usually the harder the force comes through and the relaxation and squeeze in the grip. So at the point of contact everything stays relaxed, come through and then squeeze, squeeze at the very end to get the good contact. I think those three things are definitely key. Okay, awesome. So in summary, it's the the drive from the hips and the legs. It is the range of motion in the chest and the, the shoulders. And then lastly, the grip. So being able to be relaxed and then upon contact, then it is that tight squeeze there. Fantastic. So Alex was actually the first person that we've asked this question for. And now we are going to be asking all of our future guests on the podcast for the foreseeable future to see what the most important things they think are to get the most power out of your smash. So we are going to simplify it though. We basically are going to mark down one vote for each of the following, one for grip, one for let's call it the shoulder, and then one for hips would you say hips or legs if you're going to choose one of them the drive from one of them would you say hips or legs i would probably say more hips because then from the hip it's probably more coming up into your core sure rather than you're also your legs also you get the jump which gives you something but i would definitely say the core and the hip that was more okay so we've got hip we've got shoulder and grip so trying to simplify a stroke that isn't that simple, unfortunately, there's so many attributes to it to, to give you a cannon smash like Alex's. We, yeah. <laughs> now, now that you said you're strong in your rear court, we're just going to say that you've got a cannon. But um, <laughs> we are rounding off this podcast now, Alex. So in terms of your progress and how you're doing, if there's anyone out there 
who's interested in seeing how you're doing and seeing what your tournament results are, or where you are in the world at any point in time, how can they follow your progress? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. Instagram and Twitter are my main kind of social medias and they're both the same. They're alexdunn underscore 13. So nice and simple. Awesome. We'll pop that into the podcast description for all those listening. Interesting before we wrap up, Alex, that you're probably the first guest that told us that you're, I guess, a bit more prominent on Twitter. Do you like to share your opinions a lot? Is that why you're on Twitter? Or do you like to read what other people like to say? No, no, I'm definitely one much, much more of a reader. I think I think some of the things that go on Twitter is hilarious. So I do enjoy it. Okay, I was going to say, listeners, if you want to know what Alex is thinking, check out Twitter, but it's okay. Still follow him on Twitter as well as Instagram. We'll pop those in the description. All right, so once again, Alex from Jeff and I and the Badminton Podcast, as well as the listeners, we want to thank you once again for coming on to this episode. No, thank you very much. I had a class time and you guys are amazing as well. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Bye. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.